I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes as we prepare to worship God through His Word. Make sure there's no unconfessed sin in your heart or you'll hinder what the Spirit of God wants to teach you today. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and His faithfulness to all generations. Our Father, we thank You that You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that You are indeed unchanging, that we have a solid rock, a solid person on whom we can put our full and complete trust. We come to Your throne of grace today to find help. And I know represented here in those in Graniteville, those in Grays, those live streaming, the needs are great and multiplied, some overflowing with joy, some in deep sorrow and grief. But I thank you that you meet us wherever we are, that you minister even through your people as Titus ministered to Paul in his depression. So help us, our Father, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to grieve with those who grieve. May we, our Lord, as we open your holy, infallible word, have ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray for the Spirit of God in his ministry among us today, that he would convict those who are still a part of the world system of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that they might flee to Christ. And those who, by your grace and mercy, have met you, may you take us further. May we never be ashamed of the gospel. May we be ready to carry it even this week. I pray for our outreach on Friday night that you would fill it, that there would be more people, even this afternoon, someone that you would give us who needs to come. So we commit our way to you. I ask you to help me, to fill me, to anoint me. In Jesus' name, amen. Take God's word with you this morning. Turn to the third chapter of the book of Romans. Actually, the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. We were in Romans 3 last week. Today, we want to examine a portion of Romans 5. If you're new and here for the first time, we typically do a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We recently finished Malachi. And before we begin our next book, I have a burden to spend a little time on our identity in Christ. Finding your identity in Christ is very, very important. Some are tempted to look within, to look to external things. It might be their job that gives them a sense of standing, a sense of status, maybe even great wealth. But what happens if you lose your job? What happens if you retire? Is your whole sense of self-worth built on that? It might be that you find your worth in your 
relationships that you have, your likability, possibly your appearance, but we all get older. (laughs) The sags are coming, the wrinkles are here. What if it's with your reputation and then just one word of false gossip is sent your way and seemingly your life is dismantled? And so God wants us to find our sense of identity in Him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We just studied in Malachi 3 that God never changes. And so discovering your identity in Christ is more than just saying, I'm born again, I'm a Christian, I'm on my way to heaven. That's essential. That's the starting point. But it's much more than that. If Dr. Graham was correct, he estimated 90 to 95% of those who have been saved have never grown up. They've remained babes in Christ. And so when God saves you, He makes you a new creation. And the book of Romans, among others, helps us to understand what that means. Now, as an introduction to this series, last week we studied Romans 3, 19 to 28, which many consider the single most important paragraph in all of Scripture. Well, if that's the single most important paragraph in all of the New Testament, if I had to pick the single most important chapters, I'd probably say Romans 5 through 8. Now, we studied from Romans 3, 19 to 26, our need to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so Paul, like an attorney, has walked through, beginning in chapter 1, every segment of the culture, whether it's the depraved, idol-worshiping Gentile or the highly moral man of chapter 2, or the religious Jew who has been blessed with many benefits, Whoever we are, we're guilty, that no one can claim innocence because no one can claim ignorance. We've all been given some light about God, enough to make us guilty, and by nature, children of wrath. And so today, having established last time that we're saved by grace through faith, which is an assumption when this chapter of Scripture opens, we want to begin to understand the implications of this new standing that we have in Jesus Christ. And as you're finding that portion, let me ask you a simple question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rank your level of joy? With 10 being off the charts and 1 maybe being depressed, think over the last 30 days. How would you rank your level of joy? I was recently counseling a couple And I reminded them that marriage is a lot like your relationship with the Lord. Both marriage and salvation begin with an expression of trust in another person. Both introduce you to a whole new way of life. Both are provided by God's grace, and both are designed to get better and better. But unfortunately, in many marriages, things don't get better. They get worse and worse. People say, well, that's just the way it is. It's not that way. It's not supposed to be that way. And your marriage is synced to your knowledge in relationship with the Lord. That's why these identification truths are so critically important, because as we understand who we are in Christ, we begin to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, he does not say the fruits of the Spirit are, but the fruit of the Spirit is. 
In other words, the degree to which you have one is the degree to which you have another. I might have just as well have asked, well, what is your self-control ratio on one to ten? One blowing your stack, ten living under the direction of the Spirit. Or what's your peace ratio or any of those fruits that are mentioned that the Spirit of God wants to produce. And so Paul wants us to see who we are in Christ, that we might grow up in Christ, that this whole process of sanctification would develop and deepen. Now, with that said, we're going to look at just two verses this morning, but I want to read verses 1 through 11 because they really form a single paragraph that's critically important. Romans chapter 5, beginning now in verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. In perseverance, proven character, in proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die, but God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we we're enemies, we we're reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now, the Apostle Paul in these first two verses gives us some reasons for rejoicing. And if you notice, each reason is separated by the phrase, and not only this, indicating that the next reason could be considered as even a greater reason than the previous. Notice in verse 2, it says, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. That's reason one. And then in verse 3, he begins by introducing a second reason, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. And then in verse 11, he concludes this section, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, different translations will render the word differently, exult. The newer edition of the NASB is celebrate. Some render it rejoice or glory or boast. So the words celebrate, rejoice, glory, boast, exult are very similar I think what's most helpful is that in the New American Standard, they use the same word all the way through because it's the same Greek word. And sadly, a lot of English translations don't pick up on that precision. And so we exalt. It doesn't mean we exalt. To exalt means to elevate, to lift up. And so we just finished a time of lifting up the name of the Lord, praising Him for who He is. But when we exalt, we rejoice, we celebrate and who God is and what He has said about us. Notice how chapter 5 and verse 1 begins, therefore. And of course, you are trained as a good thinker of Scripture whenever you see that word. Is it looking back? Is it looking forward? 
What is the therefore, therefore? This is the fifth therefore so far in his exposition to Romans. And of course, he has just explained man's sinful condition and our need of redemption. And so in chapter 3, after he had painted the whole world as guilty, he reminds us that we're not saved by works, we're not saved by ritual, we're not saved by our ancestry, we are saved by the grace of God found through faith in Jesus Christ. To drive home the point that this is not some new Pauline doctrine, in chapter 4 he illustrates with two of the men that were considered the greatest in Israel's history, Abraham and David. And he demonstrates that both of these men were saved not by human merit, not by works, but by grace through faith. And so on the basis of what he has just explained, he is now exhorting them to rejoice in this new position that they have. It's used again here, this word justification. Notice the very last word at the end of chapter 4. Look at you. Don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. This will be helpful to you. By the way, I know some of you are new and you don't bring a Bible. And I get that. In the last service I looked around, there must have been a dozen new people with no Bibles. They've never needed them before in churches they've been to. You need one here because I'm not here to share my opinion. You're going to grow as you learn the Word of God. And so the last word in chapter 4 is the word justification, and he uses it again here in chapter 5, and it's, uh, it's in a Greek tense that indicates that it is received through faith in Christ, having been justified by faith. In other words, it's a finished deal, it's a done deal, it's a permanent status that you now have. You can't become more justified. And so we studied last week that there's a difference between the present tense word sanctification, though there is a future tense and a past tense, but the present tense word sanctification is very different from this past tense word justified. Justification happens in a moment's time. It's a completed act, whereas sanctification is a process. It is ongoing. And sadly, many Christians think of justification in the wrong way. They'll say, well, it's just as if you never sinned. That's a half-truth. Positively, it's just as if you had always obeyed. It does not mean that God makes you righteous. It means He declares you righteous. It's an imputation term. He imputes to your account, to my account, the very righteousness that He Himself has. And so in the New Testament, we're all called saints of God. And so with this new standing that we have, he wants to underscore three blessings in the first two verses alone that come with justification. There's a note-taking outline. If you're new here for the first time, you might want to jot down some thoughts for further reflection. First, we can rejoice because we have acceptance. We can rejoice because we have acceptance. Again, he writes here in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is, exactly does it mean to have peace with God? Please note, he is not describing the peace of God. That is, peace within your heart. Don't confuse peace with God with peace of God. Certainly, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. But that's not what Paul is speaking about here. 
And again, we'll see before we're done, it's only as we understand our new identity in Christ, this peace with God that the Lord has given us, and all the implications of that, that we will, in a progressive, developing way, experience the peace of God. Jesus spoke of the peace of God when he said in John 14, 27, peace, I leave with you my peace I give you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's the peace of God. That's what Paul is referring to when he writes to the church at Philippi. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God in the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the peace of God is an internal state. It's a state of mind. It's subjective. Whereas peace with God is objective peace. He's not talking again about peace, the peace of God, but peace with God. You say, why do you underscore this? Because it's critical to life change this morning. There are people who are lost, who try to find peace in different ways. Maybe they use transcendental meditation. One very popular means today is yoga. That's is rooted in paganism. In some cultures, they literally meditate on their navel. And they maybe sit by a, a lake or some beautiful mountain scene, and they say, I have peace. Well, the peace they have is not the kind of peace that God is experiencing, that God wants you to experience. It's neither peace with God or the peace of God. Remember, a fruit of the Spirit is peace. You may meet some highly disciplined athlete, and you say, well, he has self-control. Not the kind that the Spirit of God gives. Only people who are born again can know these nine qualities, and it's very different from the world's expressions. You meet even wicked men who seemingly think they have peace and they have no fear of standing before a holy God and they think nothing to the fact that Christian preachers will tell them that unless they repent, they'll perish and they'll meet God in His wrath. And it's equally true that there are Christians who have peace with God, but who are not experiencing the peace of God. Now, whether you realize it or not, from God's perspective, before you are saved, you have no peace. When we come to verse 10 and two or three weeks from now, he will describe us as enemies, that we were enemies of God. Hold that thought and turn to Romans 8. I'm going to run down a rabbit trail here. If you didn't bring a Bible, well, just listen carefully. Romans 8, there's no slides for this. Romans 8, I want you to notice how God describes us in our lost, unsaved condition. Romans 8, look at verse 6. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Why so, Paul? Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Now, this word hostile, translated in the older edition of the American Standard Version as enmity, 
is a Greek noun that basically means hateful. In other words, the heart, the mind of the unbeliever is hostile. It's at enmity with God. It is hateful with God. In many passages in Koine Greek, this is the word that is used to translate someone who hates another person. Now, if you ask some pagan, do you hate God? They'd say, of course not, I don't hate God. Some lost, unconverted person, he'd think, you know, God and I, we're on good terms. So you don't hate God. No, I don't hate God. But then you begin to describe the God of the Bible and who He really is, that He is holy, that He is just, that He will punish sin with eternal retribution that never ends, and all of a sudden, He has a different perspective. Well, I don't like that kind of God, and He might not even like you. He may be offended by it and just sum you up as some Bible thumping fundamentalist. By the way, the term fundamentalist, which has come up recently, is a great term historically. Historically, it was used in the early part of the 19th century to describe those non-negotiables that separated Bible-believing Christians from those who were in the liberal mainline denominations of the day. Truths like the infallibility of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the substitutionary atonement, the literal physical bodily resurrection of Christ, the literal physical return of Christ. There was actually a series of 12 booklets. I have one in my library that I found. They were just in a cheap paperback format. They're about impossible to find an original. 12 little booklets that were written to the American church to remind us of the fundamentals of the faith, and so the term fundamentalists. So historically, it was a good term. Sadly, it's evolved. We speak of fundamentalist Muslims who want to slit your throat, and so we don't like to use that term, but the word evangelical means little today. People who call themselves evangelical may be really wayward in their theology, But what we see today are churches that are not presenting the God of the Bible, but one that they have made up. And this, among other reasons, is the reason for the success of the megachurch movement, is that they don't present God as He's taught in Scripture. That's why they don't do expositional teaching. You don't find it. In fact, you don't find it in churches that even believe in the God of the Bible. Why? Because nobody wants to be offensive. And so they misrepresent the living God. And so Paul concludes here in verse 8, and those who are in the flesh, notice, cannot please God. I recently read again the testimony of Jacob Koshy, who was born in Singapore, and he had one driving ambition in life, and that was to acquire possessions, house, money, etc. And so in the process of wanting to be successful He became a drug dealer. He was a gambler. He had an international smuggling network. Before long, the government uh, arrested him, put him in a drug rehab center there in the Republic of Singapore, where he sat in prison. Frustrated and bitter, he felt so empty on the inside, as he describes his testimony. He wanted cigarettes to smoke, but you couldn't find any. They weren't allowed in the prison. Some of his friends smuggled in tobacco, and then he took the Gideon's Bible that had been issued to him, and he rolled the cigarettes with the Gideon's paper in the Bible, Holy Scripture. 
He fell asleep, and the cigarette had burned out with one small portion left, and on that small portion were the words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the Spirit of God used that to goad him, and he asked for another Gideon's Bible, and he read about this man, Saul of Tarsus, and he concluded that if God could save an enemy of Christianity who murdered Christians, who put parents in jail, and God could save him and make him the great apostle, then certainly God could save him. And so after he was released from prison, he was married to a committed Christian lady, and until his death, they spent 35 years in mission service in the Far East. And he used to go around telling people who would have believed that I could, have, that I could find the truth of God by smoking the Word of God. <laughs> and that's what happened. And yet Paul says here in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And today we think if we just get a man in church and get him a little bit educated and... Um, you know, help him to lead a decent life, that that man is going to go to heaven. And Scripture is clear. You must be born again. Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. There's a play on words. If you've only had a physical fleshly birth, then you are still in a fleshly sinful state. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Three times over, he describes that. And Jesus taught Nicodemus that what we need is not a boost from below, but a birth from above. That we must be fundamentally changed from the inside out. And of course, that's the starting place. That's where it begins, and sadly, that's where it stops for most people today in the church. They are basically in a state of spiritual infancy, though they get older and older and older. And so every sin in an unbeliever's life is like a missile fired in the face of God. He's an enemy of God. Every evil thought that he has, every perverted action that he takes is an offensive maneuver against the absolute holiness of God. And so the judgment, of course, is not future. It's already been laid. And so Jesus said, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe, he's judged already, guilty. He's already been tried. Why? because he's not believing in the name of the only begotten God, Son of God. And so here in Romans 8, verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So by nature, we are enemies. But if we've been justified, reconciled, as he'll use when we come down to verses 10 and 11 then we can exult, we can celebrate this new stature that we have. But again, in order to have peace with God, you must come by grace through faith. So verse 1 begins here, therefore having been justified by faith. Now he has assumed you've read the letter up to this point. 
We studied last week Romans 3, 22 and 23. They really go together. For there is no distinction, be you Jew or Gentile, be you male or female, be you Asian, African, Indian, doesn't matter who you are, there is no distinction, educated, uneducated, religious, non-religious, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so he'll say in Romans 3, 28, where is boasting? Can a man boast? Absolutely not. It's excluded. There's no room for boasting at all. Why? Because we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So with that backdrop, again, he illustrates it in chapter 4, and he'll say in Romans 4 and verse 5, but to the one who works, his wage is not credited to him as a favor, but what's due, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, who declares righteous the ungodly, that person's faith is credited as righteousness. So if you bring human merit to the table... God will never save you. If you're trying to earn heaven, you'll never see the inside of heaven. Human merit cannot save us. It has two major fault lines. One is it denies the sufficiency of what God did in Christ. And number two, it denies your own depravity. And God wants you to know that we all, without exception, fall short of the glory of God. So there are none listening to me today who can say that I'm too good to be saved, and there are none listening to me today who can say I'm too bad to be saved. God can save anyone and everyone because we all need to be saved. So first you come on the basis of grace. He established that all the way up until chapter 5 and verse 1. And so he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Nelson, the British admiral, was victorious in a naval battle against the French fleet. And when the French admiral came to meet Lord Nelson and surrender, he came swaggering up to him, and he put out his hand to shake Nelson's hand. And Admiral Nelson stepped back, and he said, Sir, your sword first, your sword first. He was saying, You have been conquered. Don't try to shake hands with me until you admit that you have been conquered. And you don't come into the presence of God like he's your buddy and say, put it there, Lord. No, you fall at his feet as a depraved sinner. And you make your peace on the terms that God himself has established. There's a war going on and no one can remain neutral. There's no such thing as neutrality. People tell me, well, I'm going to decide. I'm just not sure when. And I always remind them, listen, not to decide is to decide. When you refuse to decide, you've put it off. You've made a decision, at least at that moment. And sadly, people who put it off, most of the time, time will win. And so Paul, when he speaks to the Athenians, he speaks of the urgency of their need to respond. And he ends that great sermon by saying, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world through Jesus Christ. 
And so when you preach the biblical Christ as Lord, men will often bristle up, they will resist. Listen, you can preach in the words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians, another Jesus. You can preach a Joel Osteen kind of Jesus and people will like it. But that is certainly not the Jesus of the New Testament. And so the scripture says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice those two words, we have. You should circle those in your mind. We have. He's not saying we will eventually get it. He's not saying we are working towards it. He's saying we have it. And the tense of the Greek verb indicates an established fact. You don't grow into peace with God. You don't work your way into peace with God. Again, it's not a process. It is an act that happens in a moment's time. When you fall on your face in your heart and say, God, I am a sinner. I am bankrupt. My sin is evil. It's offensive. It needs to be forgiven and changed. So I put my faith in the one whom you put my sin on. So again, here in Romans 5, right now and forever, we have peace with God. And listen, you may have peace with God, but not the peace of God. Stay tuned. Stick through all uh, four chapters, five, six, seven, and eight, because he's going to underscore how you can have peace with God and peace, the peace of God. Look, some of the most frustrated people I meet are born-again Christians. They're just all wrought up on the inside. They remind me of the deep-sea diver who received the message in his headset, come up quickly, the, the ship is sinking. <laughs> well, you know, listen, your ship may be sinking this morning, and God wants to right that ship. He wants to fix the course of that ship. But you need to pay attention. You need to let God speak to your heart and to change your life through these truths. Listen to what Paul says again after he's described in a much briefer way our new identity in Christ. In Colossians 3.15, he'll then say, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. The word rule is used in Koine Greek outside of the New Testament of an empire, of an umpire, of a referee. You could paraphrase it, I suppose, let the peace of Christ referee in your hearts. And so when a player steps out of bounds, the whistle blows, and the umpire, the referee, says you're out of bounds. Well, we have an internal referee. He's called God, he's called God the Holy Spirit. And when you and I step out of bounds, he blows the whistle. He convicts us. This is what Paul was speaking of when he wrote to the church at Galatia. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh, that is the sinful nature, sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition in one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. You see, when you're born from above... There's a new internal struggle that the believer experiences that is heightened way past just the unbeliever's conscience. And so when we're guilty, God the Holy Spirit blows the whistle and he says, you're out of bounds. And the only thing I will say, and Paul will underscore this for us before we're done with these four chapters, is the only thing that can take away the peace of God is your sin. Not someone else's sin. 
but your sin. And so to have the peace of God, of course, we must be justified. We must have peace with God. And that peace, of course, comes through the blood of his cross, as Paul will say in Colossians 1.20. In Ephesians chapter 2, he describes to the church at Ephesus that he, Christ, is our peace. And then in Ephesians 2.17, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, and it says, And he, Messiah, came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. And he is underscoring a prophecy of the Messiah that he has just made in the 53rd chapter when he says, but he, Messiah, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Here's the point about being justified. When a person is declared righteous, the enmity the hostility, the condemnation between him and God is eradicated. And again, that is the basis, as we'll see, for experiencing the peace of God. Now, that's the first point. With justification, we can rejoice because we have acceptance. But notice also, point two in your outline, we can also rejoice because we have access. We can rejoice not only because we have acceptance, but we can rejoice because we have access. Look, if you will, now at verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. You see, because we have, past tense, peace with God, we now have our introduction some of our English Bibles, like the ESV, say we have access. I prefer introduction because the word access can potentially have a two-way street. You can access yourself into the presence of another person all by yourself. Whereas the word introduction acknowledges that you need someone to bring you in, so to speak, to introduce us. And the Greek noun that was used was used of someone in the New Testament era where someone was brought into the presence of a superior, like into the presence of a king. And it's used that way about a half dozen times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint. And so we need to understand our right of access, our introduction into the presence of God comes through someone who invites us in, and Paul will underscore that that, of course, is Jesus Christ. And by the way, when a new covenant saint read this, remember our Bible is divided into two halves. We say the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant or the New Diatheke, the New Testament. For a new covenant believer to read that we have an introduction in which we will stand was absolutely a phenomenal thought. Because all the way through the old covenant, God speaks of division and barricades and no access. I think of Exodus 19, where the Hebrew people are absolutely awestruck as God comes down on top of Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb in Scripture. The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. 
And let them, to be, let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set up bounds for the people all around, saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Nobody said, well, I think I'll just go up and visit God. No one could come tripping lightly into the presence of a holy God. And again, you, you, you see these boundaries all the way through the Old Testament. And those who even had limited access were just a few people. And yet Paul here in Romans 5 is underscoring that we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Even in the Old Testament, here's a slide of the temple Here's a gentleman, his name is Alex Garrard. He spent 30 years of his life rebuilding the temple in every single detail to scale. In fact, they, they took his model of the temple that took 30 years of his life, and some of you have been with me in Jerusalem, where you see that model, which they've laid on this large uh, two-acre site, and they've built the whole city of Jerusalem around it. Now, as you look at this temple, uh, you'll see there, there's a colonnade all the way around. There's the outer colonnade, and then there's this second colonnade. That's called Solomon's Portico, and it was there in this inner colonnade that people would come, and they'd bring their money, and they'd buy the sacrifices, and of course, it had become a, a, a place of money-making, and Jesus cleansed the temple twice at the beginning of his ministry and the end of the ministry, but between that outer colonnade and um, this first wall is called the Court of the Gentiles. That's as far as a Gentile could go. They could go no further. Then you'll see the next wall, and the wall between uh, that and the outer walls of the temple itself was the Court of Women, and only women, Jewish women, could go into that. So in the courtyard of the Gentiles, that's as far as you could go as a Gentile. In fact, they have dug up two signs on the Temple Mount. Here's one sign, and this is what it reads. No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade or the column in the plaza of the Temple Zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. No foreigner, no Gentile. You better not cross over or you're going to be executed. And by the way, the Roman government, this was the only form of execution the Jews could carry out without Roman permission. There was a second sign. No foreigner is allowed past this point on the penalty of death. So only Jews could pass beyond this side. Again, here's the slide of the temple. Beyond the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, there was also the courtyard of men, and all Jewish women could not enter into that. And then there was even a third temple wall for the priests, Jewish priests, and then even beyond that, there were these golden gates that only those Jewish Levitical priests could go in who were involved in that particular day in the sacrificial system. And beyond that, the holy place was separated by the holy of holies with a large curtain in which only the high priest could enter. Hold your finger here. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, by the way, is written, as you might expect, to Hebrew people, to Jewish people. 
There is such a thing as Jewish Christians. There's an estimated 30,000 Jewish Christians. Uh, There are 75 congregations of Jewish believers in Israel today. They've gone from three Messianic Jews on the birthday of their nation to over 30,000. And again, it's God just putting a little bit of flesh on the bones. The great, great, great incoming of the Jews to faith will happen, of course, during the time of the tribulation. So he's writing to Hebrew Christians and some of the unique problems they have. But in doing so, he opens up so much for us about what Jesus did and what the Old Testament represented. Now, the book of Hebrews is a very challenging, very meaty book. I taught it 25 years ago. It took me a year. Look at Hebrews 10 and look at verse 19, if you will. Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus. When you have personally trusted Christ as your Savior, you have confidence to come into his presence, not because you've been justified by human efforts. Again, that's an impossible achievement before God who is infinitely holy. Verse 19 says you enter through the blood of Jesus. Verse 20 adds, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now, have you ever pondered that phrase and wondered what the veil in the Old Testament has to do with the flesh of Jesus. It's an analogy that the writer of the Hebrews wants us to think about. Now, remember, in the temple, there was the outer court, there was the inner court, and then there was the innermost room beyond the holy place. There was the holy of holies. And it was the most sacred spot on the face of the earth because it was in that room that God in his Shekinah would appear literally. Uh, If you remember, in that innermost room was the Ark of the Covenant. Here's a diagram of the Ark of the Covenant. The writer of the Hebrews reminds us that there were three objects in the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant was about the size of this pulpit, turned sideways, And in it were the second set of tablets. Remember, Moses smashed the first because of the immorality and the idolatry of the people. There was the butted rod of Aaron. Remember, the people rejected not only God's moral standards, but they rejected God's leadership. And so God took a dead stick and miraculously had it bud in almonds on it instantly. And then the third object in there was the jar of manna. So one represented God's moral standards, the rod, his leadership, and the jar of manna, his provision, which they said, we hate this, we're sick of it, it stinks. And so once a year, the high priest would go into that innermost room, and he had to pass through the veil to get to the Ark of the Covenant. There there was no door to the Holy of Holies. He had to go up underneath the curtain into the very presence of God. Now, it's a study in itself, but every aspect of the tabernacle pictures the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, when Jesus dies on the cross, he shouts, tetelestai, it's finished, paraphrased in Koine Greek, paid in full. It was a financial term that was used of someone's debt who had been paid or someone who had paid their taxes, tetelestai. And as soon as he shouted, paid in full, 
The Gospels record, for instance, in Mark 15, 38, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was not torn from the bottom to the top. It was torn from the top to the bottom because God tore it. Heaven came down. And God was sending a signal that a new economy has started, a new way of living through Jesus' flesh. That flesh was torn, it was battered, it was bruised, it was pierced. And he provided access to the Father. And so it's not by accident that in Hebrews 10 and verse 20, he compares the flesh of Jesus with the veil in the temple. Think your way through this. Did you know that the flesh of the Lord Jesus could have potentially been a hindrance to your knowing the Lord and being saved and coming into his presence. If Jesus just simply came in bodily form and came in his sinless lifestyle, for he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, this writer will underscore, but he never died if his flesh had never been lacerated and then he ascended back to the Father then we would still be, by nature, children of wrath. And so his flesh was lacerated, and so the text says in Hebrews 10, 19, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now let's imagine for just a moment some Gentile, not an Israelite, but a Gentile, and he sees that tent out there in the desert, which they carted around for 40 years. Here's a slide of the tabernacle. We were in Israel, and we weren't scheduled to do this. We were in the southern part because we had gone to Petra. And there were these Messianic Jews who had set up the tabernacle. Now, when they did it, the rabbis in Jerusalem came unglued. And they thought it would be a blasphemous uh, reproduction of the temple. But they came down, and they examined every square inch every measurement, and it was perfectly replicated just as God had told Moses how to design it. And of course, these Jews used it as a witnessing tool to say that Yeshua, Jesus, is Lord. But for just a moment, think about some Gentile, and he's out there, and he's made friends with a Jew. He said, boy, I sure would like to, to go into that, that tent-like structure. Well, are you a Jew? No, I'm a Moabite. Well, then you, there's no way. There's no way you can go in there. You have to be a Jew to go in. Well, what would be necessary for me to get in there? Well, you, there's nothing you can do. The only way you could go in there is if you were a Jew, and to be a Jew, you'd have to be born a second time and, and be born as a Jewish person. He responds, well, I'll tell you one thing. If I were a Jew, I'd like to go into that section as this picture, this next slide, into that section where all those funny-looking men are dressed like priests. Oh, well, you, even if you were Jewish, you couldn't go in there. O only, the, only the priests can go into that section of the tabernacle. To be, a, to be a priest, you not only need to be a Jew, you need to be a Levite. You need to be a from the tribe of Levi. Well, if I were a priest, I wouldn't be satisfied with going into that outer room. I'd want to go into that room I heard about, you know, the, the one where the Shekinah during the day will just be over the top of it in a, in a pillar of fire in the night. I'd like to go into that room. 
Well, number one, you'd have to be a Jew. Number two, you'd have to be a Levite. But that's not enough. You'd have to be the high priest, and there's only one of them. And that high priest can go in just once a year into that place, as this slide shows, the Holy of Holies. That sacred place where the Ark of the Covenant is, where he would go underneath that curtain and put the blood on the top of the Ark, called the mercy seat, or in the Greek Old Testament, the propitiatory seat. We studied the doctrine of propitiation last week, remember, that God is no longer angry with his people, that God has been propitiated because his anger has been burned out in Christ. And so when they put the blood on the top of the mercy or the propitiatory seat, it was symbolic that when God looked down from heaven, he no longer saw his righteous moral standards, his righteous leadership standards, his righteous provisions that had been violated, but all he saw was the blood that temporarily atoned for the people. But again, it was pointing to another act that would take place. Well, only the whole high priest can go on there, and he goes in just once a year on Yom Kippur, Yom Day Kippur Atonement, on the Day of Atonement, and then only for a few minutes. So Paul is writing here of an introduction that we have with the living God. We have confidence, like the writer of the Hebrews, which was not Paul, to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ. And Paul says we have an introduction into grace in which we stand. That was mind-blowing. It was revolutionary for any first century, especially Jew, to read of that. Because only a select few like a Moses and an Aaron could ever know God in that more personalized way. By the way, Peter underscores this same truth. Listen to this verse in 1 Peter 2. He said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You'll see he's quoting the Old Testament, a portion from Isaiah and Deuteronomy. Why are you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people. So that, here's the reason, and this is what we should be involved in as a church, not just the pastor, but individually, all of its members, so that you, plural, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I mean, this is breaking news for a first century believer, that I am a priest and I'm not a Jew, and I'm not a Levite, and that I have the same access into the presence of the holy God that even the high priest had. It's breaking news. It's revolutionary. And that's why men like Wycliffe and Huss and Swingley and Melanchthon and Knox and Luther underscored what we call the priesthood of the believer. I do take offense to these groups where we say, oh, he's a priest. He's our priest. As if you're not, if you're born again. I don't even like the idea that some people wear collars to make this distinction between the rank and file member, so to speak, and this leader. I'm not dismissing that God has ordained leadership in the church. He has, and the scripture speaks that is to be respected but to teach that he's a priest and so to imply that you're not is anything true and not faithful at all to Scripture. It's an unbiblical concept. 
The priesthood of the believer means that we have equal access to the living God. They shall all know me from the greatest of them to the least of them. That's the promise of the new covenant. And not only do we have equal access, we all have a ministry because God has gifted his people to serve. Now, lest we be too smug, you see some who call themselves evangelicals, who put their hope maybe in some TV evangelists. He says, send your letter to me, with money, of course, and I'll lay my anointed hands on your letter, and I'll pray for you as if he has some power of prayer that you don't have. Hey, look, I'm glad to pray for anyone. But don't think for one skinny moment that I have some power, some access to God that you also cannot have. Now, if you're not living with the Lord, the prayer, effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And some people, there he's dealing with experiential righteousness. Some people are not living righteously. And if I harbor, if I cling to, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord does not hear a verse written to believers. But understand, you can agree with any brother or sister in the Lord and have the same blessed access than anyone else. These guys are shysters. They're crooks. They're ripping people off. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so the writer of the Hebrews, the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter is blowing out these falsehoods. Again, in Romans 5 and verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we can rejoice because we have acceptance. We can rejoice because we have access. Third, we can rejoice because we have assurance. We have assurance. Again, reading further into verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, sadly, I think the church in America was rightly assessed by Dr. John Hanna, who I consider the foremost church historian who's alive, that it is at its lowest point in American history. And Paul wants us to understand that because God is a holy God, and by nature we are sinners that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and that we now have peace with God and therefore we have access. We have an introduction. You know, it's one thing if you're invited to the White House and you uh, are invited into the White House. And I, I've been to the White House a few times, but twice, not because of me, but because of my son. Twice I was in the Oval Office, once when the president was there. But it's not like we went in there and we spent an hour with the president. We had five minutes and then you were gone. I didn't bring my suitcase and say I'm moving into the family quarters. When you go visit the queen, you might have, or the king now, I guess you might have a, a moment's time with them. Paul says, look, we have an introduction into grace in which we stand. He's describing an unchangeable state. And this word stand, histomy, is used throughout the New Testament in that way. For instance, in Romans 14, he says, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1, same word, now I made known to you the brethren, which I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand. 
2 Corinthians 1, for in your faith you are standing firm. One word, use two words to translate it. Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm. Same word against the schemes of the devil, or here in Romans 5, 2, through him we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Your feet are now standing with the Lord in an unchangeable state. You have a new status before God. Our previous status was the status of condemnation. Our new status in which we stand firmly forever, as he'll underscore in the eighth chapter, is a state of grace. So what state do you live in? You and I are born into the state of condemnation. And once we reach that age of accountability, unless we come to faith in Christ, if we die in that state, we die eternally under the wrath of God. You want to make sure you know that you are in the state of grace. And again, when you think about the state of grace, understand there's a distinction in the New Testament that Paul is going to underscore when we come to 6, 7, and 8, dealing not with justification, but he'll move into our sanctification, that there's a distinction between our position and our practice. Our position is fixed. It's an eternal standing. Our practice, well, it could be up and down. It's the difference between our communion and our union. The difference between our fellowship with God and our relationship with God. And if we, in our practice, get out of sync with the Lord, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. He may take us to the woodshed. And so here in verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now, again, when you read the word hope, understand it's different than our English word that typically carries the connotation of hope. So I hope the rain quits this afternoon. I hope I get a raise. I I hope this suit still fits. I hope this or I hope that. It is often used to describe wishful thinking. But in the New Testament, the word elpidus, hope, refers to something that is sure and certain and definite that is unchanging. Faith, hope, love, these three, the greatest is love. Why? Because someday faith will become sight. Hope will become reality, but love will go on forever. But it speaks of a future promise that will absolutely definitively happen. And so he says we can rejoice, we can celebrate, we can exult in hope of the glory of God. Well, what is the glory of God? Well, Paul is going to help us to see that. You've got to come back next time. This, you know, again, the first 11 verses are inextricably linked together. He's going to refer to the glory of God as God's character, God's outward shining of his inward reality. And when God saves you, you become his project. He wants to make you, he wants to make me more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God is committed to you. And Paul is saying, you can rejoice, and he'll unfold this in verses three through five. You can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Think about this. Paul is writing this letter. Actually, Tertius is is the amanuensis, which is a fancy word for the one writing it all down. How do we know that? From Romans 16. And Paul is dictating under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and he's writing it down. We have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt. We, we, we shout! And maybe at that point, Paul said, Tertius, think about what God has given me to write that you're writing down. He's committed to us. He is going to form Christ's image in us. That's his earnest desire for us. And maybe Tertius had to stop and say, Paul, that's exciting. Maybe he got up and started praising the Lord. I don't know how it happened. But I want you to see that we have a new access. We have been introduced into the presence of God through our faith in the Lord Jesus. We have peace with God, and now God is committed to making us like his son. How is this going to apply? Let me suggest some applications as we close. Number one, since we stand in grace, we should identify with it and enjoy it. Since we stand in grace, this grace in which we stand forever, it's on an unbreakable stance. We should identify with it and enjoy it. God is telling us to exult. He's telling us to rejoice, to boast in a healthy way. So what is it like to live in the state of grace? Well, I suppose it's a lot like living in South Carolina. In this state, we have our borders. And by the way, countries are supposed to have borders. You know that, huh? God actually invented that concept to stay evil. When a nation doesn't have borders, evil spreads. And even our state has a border. We have borders. We have a charter. We have a seal. We have statutes. We have our beaches. We have our mountains. We have our forests. We have our wildlife. South Carolinians even have their own accents, and we have our own style of barbecue. We live in a state where we pay taxes to this state. We don't pay it to another state. We pay taxes to this state in which we live. And we respect the laws and the ordinances of South Carolina. And if you've moved here from another state, enjoy this place. Don't lament about what they had back up there or back over there. Enjoy this place. If this is the new state that God has called you to, you might even adopt one of their football teams. And so when Boston College played Clemson, I was invited to that game with a friend, and there I was in Death Valley, and I realized that if I valued my life, I better root for Clemson. <laughs> now, we had a daughter that went to Clemson, two of our sons who went to USC, who are still wondering where we went wrong as parents. But nonetheless, my point is, is that if you are saved, you have moved into a new state, and it's called the state of grace. And so because you stand in grace, you should cheer for the advancements of states. Uh, you should cheer for, <laughs> cheer for the advancement of grace. He's made you a priest to do what? To proclaim his excellencies. We should do everything that we can to invite other people into this state of grace. And let me thank those who literally physically got on their knees and prayed for someone that they could invite to hear Todd Friel, and it's not too late, as I'll share at the end of the service. And so in light of grace, we should deal graciously with other people. We have moved out of a state of condemnation into a state of grace, and we should indeed even find a fellowship of grace, a New Testament church in which to serve God's people. Secondly, by way of application, since we stand in grace, we should invite others into the state of grace. 
Since we stand in grace, we should invite others into the state of grace. The Apostle Paul will teach this church at Rome the necessity of doing this when he comes to the 10th chapter. But let me at least mention it now. Again, this word access, this word introduction, here in verse 2, has other nuances in the Greek language of the New Testament. It was used to describe a ship that came safely into harbor. And so that ship found safe haven in a harbor. And really, with that nuance of the word in mind, that's a description of what the local church should be. This should be a place where hardcore pagans can come. And without us compromising and lowering the standard, which is sadly what's happening across America in so-called evangelicalism, without changing the standard, people can come and find a sense of acceptance and love. That we view people as more important than ourselves. Hey, look, when some of us came to this church, when some of us came to Christ, wherever that may have been, we were pretty rough. In fact, in one sense, in God's economy, we were all rough. But someone welcomed us, and someone cared enough about us to give us the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is to be the spirit of every born-again local assembly of Christians. We're to welcome a lost world into this state of grace. And let me just say, if you've never received Christ, you can receive him today. You can be saved before you leave. Because justification is not a process, it's an act. Salvation is not earned. The gift of God is eternal life. It's received. And if you will call on Christ, he will save you right now. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Our Father, in these days, as we are seeking to understand what you have declared us to be in Jesus Christ, help us to have open, teachable hearts. May we not be know-it-alls, but may we be humble before you. You give grace, growing grace to the humble. You resist the proud. May the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, change the way we think about you, our Father, and about ourselves in terms of what you've declared us to be. I pray today for someone listening. Maybe they're in Graniteville. Maybe they're in Grace. Maybe they're here live streaming but they don't know you. They haven't been introduced into this new standing of grace. They're still living in the state of condemnation. Thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I pray and ask that they might call upon Jesus and to say, Lord Jesus, save me. For those saints, our Father, that know you, who are maybe discouraged, who've believed the lie of the evil one, that they'll always be the way they are. May you, in these days, renew our minds, 
remind us of the hope of the glory of God, that what you began, you want to complete. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. Maybe you're here and you know Christ. You've never made it public. I want to give you that opportunity. The last service, we baptized two brand new Christians. Providentially, God brought them here. They received Christ knowing they were moving this week. But God brought them so they could get saved. And they're just thanking the Lord up there in the baptismal this morning that God in his mercy saw them brought them to this church that they might hear the gospel. Maybe you've received Christ. You've never made it public like they. You haven't been baptized as a symbol. I want to invite you to take that step. Maybe you need a church home. I want to invite you to come and commit yourself to this assembly of believers. So as Matt leads us, if you're going to come, step out right now and meet me here in the front.